G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. You might be aware that a voluntary assisted dying bill passed through the Victorian Lower House last week and tomorrow, that's right, we are on the eve of a debate beginning in the Victorian Upper House. You might recall last week 47 MPs voted for the bill for euthanasia and 37 voted no after being given a conscience vote on the issue. Well, the debate will turn to the Upper House tomorrow, where 40 MPs will vote. Now, it's expected to be even closer, meaning its passage could come down to just a handful of undecided MPs in Victoria. Three very special guests to introduce us to today. Dr. Megan Best is a palliative care doctor and medical ethicist, is currently working as a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney. Megan is the author of books, two of them, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Ethics and the Beginning of Human Life, and A Life Already Started. Uh, those from 2012, 2013, a special welcome to you, Dr. Megan Best. Thank you very much, Neil. Uh, also to Babette Francis, founder of the Endeavour Forum, a senior fellow on social policy at Macroeconomics and vice president of the Family Council of Victoria and holds special consultative status with the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations. Babette, welcome along. Thank you for having me on your program, Neil. And to Dan Flynn, who is Victorian State Director of the Australian Christian Lobby, former barrister and solicitor with the Victorian Government. Dan Flynn, welcome to you. Thanks, Neil. Dan, let me start with you. You have been monitoring the situation in Victoria, and we did get an update with you last week as that vote came through, saying the lower house had passed this, what we might consider, dangerous legislation about a euthanasia bill. How do things look in the upper house as we are on the eve of the debate beginning in Victoria? Neil, the numbers are going to be closer in the upper house. Um, uh, you know, there's 88 members in the lower house, only 40, as you say, in the upper house. Um, Basically, uh, for this bill to be defeated, uh, there would need to be 20 votes against the bill, uh, which would lock up the vote at 20 all. Uh, the president doesn't have a casting vote. Um, the government wouldn't get a majority and the bill would be defeated at the second reading speech. Uh, so it's anticipated that speeches will start tomorrow morning about 9.30, continue till about midnight. Um, and I understand the timing is such that these speeches will conclude about 3 o'clock on Friday. Uh, when um, the vote will be taken. Um, can I say this about the numbers, Neil? Um, you know, there's, there's going to be a, um, a rump on either side. Uh, those who are of the, um, I suppose, the progressive left who uh, consider euthanasia part of a progressive ideology, uh, they will be voting for the bill. Um, those who are known to be socially conservative on all issues will vote against. Um, What's been notable in the way the numbers appear to be lining up here is that there are many 
um, progressive um, Liberal Party members uh, who have uh, expressed considerable doubt about the bill, um, and so much so that they won't vote for it, uh, including uh, notably Margaret Fitzherbert, who actually was part of the Legislative Council report uh, that uh, approved the making of a bill in this general form. So the, um, those who have been very doubtful have lined up against the bill, um, and there are a number of ALP members as well. Um, Neil, just probably being as clear as I can, I would have thought that those who are against the bill are probably in the range of about uh, 16 to 18. Um, and, you know, I can't, um, I, I can't assert that it's actually any higher than that, is my sense. So at this point, Dan, things are looking pretty serious for the state of Victoria. And, of course, legislation like this overflows because the whole nation would be affected. Let me come to Babette Francis. Babette, you are aware of these sorts of issues as they've been enacted in law around the world. Uh, How are your thoughts about Victoria being so close uh, to putting this sort of legislation into, uh, into society for your state? Uh, I'm deeply concerned about it, uh, Neil, because if it's legalized in Victoria, whatever you call it, euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide or uh, aid in dying, uh, it will affect all of Australia because a person will just have to come and uh, rent a place or, you know, stay with a relative and they'll be um, uh, able to access the, the procedure. Uh, I also think that proposing amendments is a little futile. I think we should be outspoken like the uh, our uh, politicians and leaders should be outspoken like the World Medical Association and uh, simply oppose the uh, score on Victoria's upper house to reject the bill. Um, amendments are not uh, amendments are sort of a, a, a weak way of going about it because the the principle is thou shalt not kill. That's clearly articulated in the Ten Commandments, and that's the principle that even if you have all sorts of safeguards and amendments and a longer time span and uh, half a dozen physicians certifying that the the patient is doing this voluntarily, you're still crossing that line about killing, and the principle is thou shalt not kill. So amendments and... uh, uh, are not the way to go. Uh, I think, uh, uh, to do them credit, uh, uh, p- former prime ministers have uh, come out opposing the bill, so has the World Medical Association, and it's, uh, the association has declared in its declaration on euthanasia, euthanasia, that is the act of deliberately ending the life of a patient, even at the patient's own request or at the request of close relatives, is unethical. And uh, physicians-assisted suicide like euthanasia is unethical and must be condemned by the medical profession. So I'm not supporting any amendments or any safeguards. I'm standing by the principle, thou shalt not kill. Uh, Dr. Megan Best, you are a medical ethicist. What are the biggest issues for you in this debate that's going on in Victoria and so close to, in fact, bringing euthanasia into law in that state? Uh, How do things sit for you? I think um, I have several reservations about the whole debate. Uh, Firstly, I, I agree with Babette that you can put in as many safeguards as you like to try to avoid abuses, but, uh, but when it comes to the basic act of 
one group of uh, people in our country being allowed to kill another group. We are we are crossing a line we have never crossed before, and I think um, that I agree that when we say. Uh, that doctors can kill their patients. We, we are changing one of the most basic tenets of our society, and that is that we do not kill each other, even for reasons of compassion and mercy, and it is just wrong. Uh, I, th- I am very concerned by the fact that a lot of the debate um, in the uh, lower house uh, was factually incorrect. And the, um, the, the idea of a conscience vote... Uh, works so long as our conscience is informed. And it's obvious that many of the parliamentarians do not understand normal end-of-life care and um, do not realise that if palliative care isn't available to uh, all members of the community, that in fact people are still not getting a choice and there is likely to be increased suffering rather than less. And the idea that passing this law is going to stop suffering at the end of life is is just ridiculous because uh, there is so much uh, involved in facing one's own death that needs to be addressed that is not about um, uh, physical symptoms and and just physical relief. Uh, we, We need to engage with the complexity of relationships as we come to the end of our life. And, and that kind of work needs a lot of support um, for people while they're still alive so that those left behind um, don't continue on suffering with broken relationships. So I think that those concerns that, that we are not really trying to improve the end-of-life journey for people so much as cutting it short and hoping all the problems go away, I think it's a very retrograde step for medicine. But, but the fact that we have to spend so much time talking about safeguards underlines the fact that essentially this is not a safe practice at all. And Megan, while we're discussing this, you mentioned factual incorrect information being used in the lower house debate. I I mean, there's a politicising, isn't there, of everybody's position on these sorts of issues. Is there anything in particular that you identify as being that factually incorrect uh, area that has been focused on to to make this debate, uh, you know, in favour of euthanasia. Well, I, I think that there has been a false um, uh, exaggeration of how many people are in pain at the end of life, and uh, that the uh, palliative care uh, figures have been misinterpreted to suggest that's the case. But in fact, very few people are in pain at the end of life if they have access to palliative care. And in the places where it is legalised, the reasons patients request uh, assisted dying is because of psychosocial problems such as fear of being alone, a fear of being a burden, um, and uh, anticipated problems rather than problems they're actually experiencing. So, so these um, are not the physical problems that parliamentarians Uh, have been alluding to at the end of life. There have been suggestions that palliative care doctors are currently killing their patients surreptitiously and that um, we use drugs like morphine to kill patients uh, and that we all need to be regulated. But in fact, uh, it is very difficult to kill someone with morphine and and in uh, registered palliative care services with with, um, specialist doctors, uh, the doses that are used would not shorten life. In fact, we know quite 
um, clearly that morphine in therapeutic doses doesn't shorten life. So there's a lot of misinformation about that. I even heard one of the um, people uh, sort of supporting euthanasia say that um, doctors in Catholic institutions allow their patients to suffering because Catholics think that suffering is good for people and so they don't give them enough pain medication. Once again, absolutely ridiculous. And um, it just makes people think that there's a lot more physical suffering out there than in fact there is. And also it, it has tried to reduce the, um, the value of palliative care by saying that we're ineffective on the one hand and on the other hand are killing our patients already. Dr. Megan so Best. These, these kinds of things. It's sure. very disappointing. I mean, if, if the, the community wants euthanasia, there's nothing... You know, we're in a democracy that that can be the case. But let's do it um, by by looking at the the truth, not not these misrepresentations of end of life care. Megan, you are a palliative care doctor and medical yeah. ethicist, and I want to invite listeners uh, if you've got questions. There might be a burning question, an issue that you'd like to raise. Uh, our talkback line is open today, 1-800-316-316. Dr. Megan Best is with us, Babette Francis, founder of the Endeavour Forum, and Dan Flynn, the Victorian Director of the Australian Christian Lobby. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Three special guests with us, an expert panel. When we're talking about this issue of euthanasia, it is, Ria, we're on the eve of uh, the upper house in Victoria beginning to debate euthanasia. Dr. Megan Best is our guest, as well as Babette Francis and Dan Flynn. Uh, we're talking through these issues, euthanasia, and you can be a part of our conversation on 1-800-316-316. Let's come to some of the really important issues, the way that... Patients are affected, their families, and even the physicians involved in uh, euthanasia, if that were to become law. Let me first of all come to you, Dan Flynn. This is something that you've been talking to MPs in Victoria about. Are they open to discuss the broader consequences of what happens if you change this law? They certainly are, Neil. I think what's concerning me, though, is that uh, some of them have, have taken the narrative that people are in pain at the end of their lives and yes, there may be collateral damage, there may be wrongful deaths, um, but um, it, it, that may be the price we have to pay. And I've, I've had some harrowing feedback from those who communicated with MPs along those lines. And, um, uh, you know, I think we are definitely looking at a culture of death whereby people accept as collateral damage, wrongful deaths, uh, to get a policy objective through that could be achieved by better palliative care. Okay, let's hear from Babette Francis on similar sorts of things like this, on how people are influenced, people, their families and the physicians themselves who are involved uh, in this process. Uh, Babette, what are your thoughts about uh, the strains well, like on the to, medical like profession? The World Medical Association concerned that um, if this Victorian bill is passed into law, it will create a situation of direct conflict with pa physicians' ethical okay. obligations to patients and will harm the ethical tone of the profession. 
and it also warns that vulnerable people will be placed at risk of abuse. But the other thing is that there is a great deal element of fraud involved in this legislation because apparently it's going to be listed uh, not as a assisted dying or whatever, a euthanasia, but that the person died of their underlying disease, that's of cancer. Now, that falsifies medical data because quite a number of cancer patients are on particular drug treatments or experimental trials or uh, some sort of um, uh, well, some sort of medical trial. And if this trial is interrupted by um, a physician-assisted suicide, then it and the, and it's listed as the death from cancer rather than the suicide. Um, it falsifies all the medical data, so there's fraud involved there, and it also hampers medical research. I'm speaking from personal experience because my husband. Um, who died uh, eight years ago, suffered from cancer, and he was on a trial which did help. Um, it was experimental, but it did extend his life and um, uh, did mitigate the cancer for a while. Now, all that data would have been falsified and lost if, say, he'd opted for physician-assisted suicide and his death had been listed as dying of the cancer. Uh, that, that data would have been lost. That In fact, this experimental treatment did help and did delay the progress of the disease for a while. So I object very much to the fraudulent aspects of this uh, legislation that the death will be listed as a death from cancer or whatever rather than a death from suicide. Dr. Megan Best, you can talk very well into this issue of how how the doctors will be affected if there's a change of law. What sort of concerns have you been hearing? What sort of concerns do you have from the position of the physician who would be involved in these sorts of uh, voluntary euthanasia issues? Uh, we, we've been hearing from our colleagues in uh, Canada who legalized uh, assisted dying um, just over a year ago and uh, there has been great uh, personal trauma uh, from doctors who thought that they could uh, engage in killing a patient in, at that patient's demand to, to relieve uh, the perceived suffering but are finding it personally quite traumatic. And we certainly know uh, from one profession who do need to be involved with killing of their patients, and that's uh, veterinary surgeons, that there is a very high incidence of psycho, uh, psychological distress in people who are engaging in this kind of activity. And uh, I've um, been involved in developing a website called um, doc, uh, Health Professionals, uh, say no, and uh, we are accumulating hundreds of health professionals from around Australia as they hear about our website, putting their name to our petition, saying that they didn't come into healthcare for, for purposes like this, that the role of healthcare professionals is to heal, uh, not to be involved in ending lives of their patients. And there is a, a lot of moral distress about about this bill. Dan Flynn, as you've been monitoring a number of states, uh, recently South Australia and again in Tasmania and a narrow defeat in South Australia, a little bit more uh, cut and dried for Tasmania. Has this debate unfolded in a similar sort of way to those states? Uh, were issues of coercion, of elder abuse, of the way that physicians are affected? Were these sorts of things brought to light in those other debates that you were aware of? Well, they certainly were, Neil, and I can comment on the South Australian uh, numbers. Uh, the vote uh, was lost at the second reading speech by about four votes. 
Uh, it then uh, proceeded into committee stage to debate a number of amendments. What was happening there was that the government was prepared to give every amendment that was asked for, and I think there were, there were about four MPs who said, no, just, that's just not, not good enough. We can't make policy on the run like this. And then at the final third reading, reading vote, it, it was a draw with the president voting it down. Um, so um, returning to, I think, Babette's initial point is that, um, look, I'm not supportive of amendments either. I think this bill needs to be voted down this Friday in its entirety. Uh, it is just so full of holes. If, if you patch up one or two of them, you know, there's another 25 that are simply not addressed. And I think that if we go to, um, if people think, oh, look, I'll vote for it at the second reading speech stage on Friday and then talk about amendments, um, it's um, uh, a very dangerous pathway to take because many people can be seduced by thinking, well, if we reduce the eligibility period from 12 months to six months, uh, we make it safer, or if we get three doctors involved, we make it safer, and then um, uh, it may get the, you know, the required majority of votes at the third reading stage. So um, the bill uh, cannot be made safe. I think, Neil, you've addressed coercion. Coercion does not show up on any X-ray, and one of the... Um, parts of this bill, it will require docs to, doctors to certify uh, that the patient's not being coerced. How will a doctor know? What inquiry is a doctor meant to be put upon? Um, and, um, you know, the doctor doesn't even need to be in a therapeutic relationship with the patient. They'll never know. Uh, so uh, these matters can't be fixed by uh, any amendment. Um, and, uh, you know, to ask uh, doctors to certify that there's no coercion uh, is, is an unfair burden on a doctor uh, that they simply won't be able to properly fulfil. Just a couple of minutes out from news, uh, staying with you for a moment, Dan Flynn, uh, we've talked earlier about what sort of action people listening to our conversations can take when it comes to this issue of voluntary euthanasia and this uh, bill that's about to go to the upper house in Victoria. Is this a time when people ought to be in contact with upper house MPs in Victoria? Uh, is it too late or what's, what, can, what action can people take? Look, they must act before it is too late. Uh, and they need to act before 3 o'clock on Friday. Uh, people will be going on the record in their speeches uh, as of tomorrow morning. So, yes, yeah, simply uh, emailing their five upper house MPs, asking them to vote uh, against the legislation that it can never be made safe um, uh, is something that must be done. Ultimately, these politicians are paid by the voters and they will listen, even if they pretend that they are not listening. Uh, Dr. Megan Best... Uh, representatives I... of my organisation will today be visiting uh, or, or delivering letters if they can't actually see the upper house members, um, urging them to, uh, you know, carefully consider their vote on this uh, legislation. But the, one other point I seem, wanted to make is that this whole bill uh, presents a very pessimistic view of life. Um, the treatments for cancer, in particular cancer, is the big disease that everyone's afraid of, uh, are just improving uh, day by day. There's new discoveries of, um, uh, not, if not cure, or at least uh, extension of life. And this uh, whole emphasis on uh, ending your life just um, eliminates that spirit of optimism that we should have in this uh, wonderful country of ours. Uh, for our guests, let's take a call. David is in Adelaide with a comment on our conversation today. Hello, David. Welcome along. Hello. How are you all? God bless you all. Um, you know, 
I'll tell you how ridiculous this is, right, if you think about it. You could start a new funeral company, come to your own funeral for your death, lie in your coffin in comfort, read your obituary, listen to the singing and tell people who you don't like what you think, then we'll bring it to an end, close the lid and drop you in the hole. Okay, that's an interesting... Doesn't it sound ridiculous? Uh, it does sound ridiculous. And for a lot of people who oppose euthanasia, what's happening in Victoria today and what's about to happen tomorrow with this debate does sound ridiculous. Uh, let me come to, uh, to first of all, to Dr. Megan Best. And you might have a response for David in Adelaide, but David's talking about some things ridiculous. Well, another thing that is ridiculous along those lines, the idea that eight people a day in Australia are committing suicide and isn't the idea of endorsing euthanasia uh, simply endorsing suicide. Your thoughts, Dr. Megan Best, uh, for David and, and on those sorts of issues? Um, I can see the comic side, but, but personally I think it's just tragic that um, our government is, is really basically saying that suicide is a reasonable response to trouble in your life. And uh, I think that it's going to send a very negative message to people in our community that if the government is happy to support suicide and that it's a reasonable choice. But I think you, you've touched on something there that even though there is a lot of lip service being given to the problem of suffering at the end of life, I think that driving the euthanasia push is a great sense of fear of people who are scared of dying, who have lost touch with the spiritual side of life long before they're facing their own death. And uh, they don't know what's going to happen and they want to try and control death. And the only way you can control it is by deciding the time and the manner of death for yourself. And I really think that uh, the euthanasia debate is um, a, a just what what happens in a society that doesn't have um, answers to the existential questions people have when they're facing their own death. Okay. Thank you so much to David in Adelaide for your comment. Let's take another quick question here. Uh, Jim is in Victoria. Hello, Jim. Welcome along. Oh, yes. Uh, hi. Um, what are your thoughts, Jim? Well, mine's not so much a question. I, I, I rang Wendy Lavelle and I rang Daniel Young, who I'm one of the constituents of their area, and I said to them, I, I watched a thing on the, the, t on, um, the internet about a young lady, 24 in Bulgaria, who wanted to uh, euthanise herself. Now, they granted her that at the age of 24. Now, my mother died when I was 17 and I didn't have a dad, and I'm telling you, I really wanted to die at those times. Now, it was a black period in my life, and, and I couldn't see a way out. I couldn't find a way to escape. But fortunately, through faith, um, Jesus got me at a time when I was, I was probably, if I had gone ahead, I would have finished my life off. And I, and I said to them, I am so glad that I'm still alive. I'm so glad God intervened. The young lady herself, she said she experienced an emptiness inside herself. And, and just as we all know, there's an empty void in our life, and the only one who can fill it is God. Uh, good thoughts in there, Jim. Let's get a response. And if I can come to Babette Francis, when we talk about this emptiness that people have, uh, this idea that somehow or other, in an autonomous sense, as we were talking about just a few moments ago, we feel like we have to have a control over our dying. What are your thoughts for Jim Babette on the value think, of human life I here? I think there has to be some, some sort of uh, Christ, uh, something like the Christian acceptance that we can't control 
all the uh, aspects of our life, you know, that ultimately the Almighty God is in control, and there has to be some acceptance of that. Uh, none of us knows we might be knocked over by a bus or something tomorrow. Um, there's been a, a terrorist attack in New York, and a whole lot of eight, about eight people, innocent pedestrians, have been killed. We, we, we can't foresee events like that happening to us. But uh, the, the point I'd like to mention is that when a patient is um, suffering from a serious illness and to, uh, to his doctor requests um, assisted suicide, uh, the doctor should be required to refer that patient to a, a, a specialist committee who, will, who could help um, identify what is um, uh, causing this patient such distress and how it can be alleviated. There should be some sort of specialist um, forum to deal with those sorts of cases. It's sort of like having an, another disease in a, in a way as well as the the cancer or the ALS or whatever else is causing the um, the patient to want to die. They, I think they should be referred to some hospital committee that can maybe uh, that specialises in trying to ameliorate the distress the patient is suffering from. Uh, Jim from Victoria, thanks so much for your call, and we're glad you're still alive today too. Let me ask our panel about the idea of how there could be some way that might be uh, a deal or a postponement on the current legislation that's in Victoria. The Upper House is going to be holding all of the power when it comes to a vote, potentially on Friday. The idea of saving face, the idea of a postponement. Uh, let me ask you, Dan Flynn, is there any mechanism in the debate that you're aware of that might slow the process down and put this whole issue out of sight for a little while? Yes, there is such a thing as a reasoned amendment, uh, which will be um, uh, tabled, I expect, sometime tomorrow. <clears throat> Just excuse me. So that will basically be um, that the House declines to read the bill a second time until these concerns have been addressed. Um, and in summary, that the inequalities in palliative care, especially in regional Victoria and country Victoria, be addressed, that uh, there'd be more clarity about what substances are to be used uh, to uh, kill people, um, that the risks of doctor shopping be addressed, um, that there be better protection against elder, elder abuse um, and better safeguards, uh, you know, all round. So um, people may vote for that who uh, can genuinely say to uh, their constituents, I support this in principle, but um, clearly the legislation uh, is not ready yet. Uh, there's more work to be done. Uh, in palliative care and other areas before I vote for it. So that is a way uh, that could resolve the matter. Uh, when that uh, recent amendment was put to the lower house, uh, that was lost um, uh, by a number of votes. Um, but that, that uh, choice will be available for MPs tomorrow. Dr Megan Best on this issue of palliative care because this is the other side of the debate isn't it uh, you've got euthanasia uh, people who are proposing that uh, you've got then advocates of palliative care and saying we don't need euthanasia we have palliative care to make people comfortable but palliative care appears to be misunderstood what are your concerns about the way people think about palliative care I, I it's a fairly new specialty so um, a lot of people in the community are not familiar with uh, what is available in terms of support. And I can't tell you how many times families have said to me, if we knew what support was available, we wouldn't have been so worried about the end-of-life journey. And I think that's 
pretty well um, the case for the majority of people coming through our service. I, I think that uh, not even all doctors know what's possible in palliative care uh, because when I was at medical school, there was no mention of it. It's, uh, it's that new. And a lot of people aren't uh, really aware of what we can do, even in terms of things like um, pain control or um, the psychosocial support we can do to help um, people deal with the big questions that arise at the end of life that um, they need to deal with in order to die peacefully. Just the practical things like arranging um, someone to come to the house to help you with having a shower and uh, doing some housework. There's just so much available the public's not aware of. And I think if they did know more about palliative care, they would be less concerned about what happens at the end of life. Babette Francis, this idea of losing your dignity and not having that control at the end of your life, you've held some concerns about that, but uh, in some ways able to put people's hearts and minds at ease uh, when thinking about the, the sort of dignity we can have with the palliative care that is available to us. I think there is a great deal of ignorance about that and uh, perhaps we should emphasize that it's an indictment of the Premier of the State of Daniel Andrews that people are not aware of the palliative care that's available and also if the palliative care is inadequate, well that's an indictment on him. Why doesn't he... uh, ensure that palliative care is available to all those who need it and that they're aware of what is available. I think that's the the biggest essential. And as the opposition has emphasized that they want to increase the funding for palliative care, perhaps we could postpone debate on this bill until that funding has been made available and there's been widespread publicity about what palliative care is available so that not just the patients but their nearest and dearest, their relatives, know what can be done to to help them. But uh, I keep emphasizing that this physician-assisted suicide or aid in dying or whatever you want to call it is a bright red line that we must not cross. We do, we just cannot kill. We must not allow the killing of, uh, of, any, of any one of vulnerable people. Dan Flynn, let me ask you about this idea that uh, a person's autonomy uh, becomes more important than the others that are closest to us, uh, family members. Uh, One person's autonomy, exposing others to great risk, issues like impatience about getting an inheritance, this coercion issue. Let's come back to that because because somehow or other there's this thought that seems to be so prevalent that everybody's going to be nice to each other. That's just not the case, is it? Well, it's not. And I think that... um you know, the uh, somebody who is uh, possession of all their senses, uh, they say, well, even if best palliative practice, uh, palliative care was available, I'd still want this choice. Well, that's a fair enough comment, but uh, that choice uh, has to be positioned against the wider societal good, where we know that those who are vulnerable, who are frail, uh, who have uh, depression or other mental illness, um, can be very easily persuaded that this is the best way out. A clean cut a shortening of life um, and you know factors like inheritance in patients um, uh, are all relevant Um, uh, you know young families are under ever-increasing pressure uh, and um, uh, you know no doubt there can be uh, pressure put on older people we already know that older people have internalized the message that they're a burden Uh, they already feel that 
Mm. Uh, so it doesn't take much to um, uh, push them in the wrong direction. Uh, and we must protect those who are uh, the most frail um, and um, um, look after them. Um, um, you know, this is, this is really our whole society here. How we treat these people uh, tells us about who we are. Let's take a moment, take another call from a listener in Logan in Queensland. Tom is on the line. Hello, Tom. Welcome along to 2020. Yes. Um, I just want to address the, um, the, the problem of lack of dignity. Um, my dad um, lost his leg, so when he had to go to the toilet before he died, they had to truss him up like a side of meat on a on a hoist. But the thing is, he still had his dignity apart from that. And I don't think a lot of people have taken that into account. It's a good question, a good uh, illustration, Tom, and thank you so much for calling to share that. Because uh, if I was talking uh, to Babette Francis for a moment, uh, we're created in the image and likeness of God. Our dignity doesn't necessarily come from the ways that we feel as though we have our autonomy and uh, and our capacity to to do things in a in a reasoned and and uh, able bodied way. Your thoughts, Babette, for our uh, for our caller, Tom. Uh, I I agree with her, and I'm I'm also very concerned about the uh, the, the opportunity for what I call elder abuse. Uh, Margaret Daw has written a. Uh, very interesting article on uh, Alex Schadenberg's um, uh, euthanasia prevention uh, blog, and she says that the elder abuse um, is often by family members. They start off with small crimes such as stealing jewellery and blank checks, and then they move on to larger items or coercing victims to sign over deeds to their homes or change their wills. And uh, of course, not all, uh, not many family members are unscrupulous like this, but there are subtle pressures they bring to bear on the a person who is already in pain and maybe can't control uh, bowel or bladder or something and is feeling very undignified and useless, uh, you know, to say, oh, you know, oh, mum and dad, I, I've got this big mortgage on my house and I can't, uh, having difficulty paying the children's school fees and so on. And this sort of abuse by even your nearest and dearest can be uh, literally life-draining. Okay. Uh, can I say something there also? That Megan. I've certainly seen um, patients in my working as a palliative care doctor, I, I've seen patients' relatives come in and uh, take financial advantage. So it, it does, the, the prospect of inheritance does bring out the worst in some people. But there are other families where they deeply love each other and, and the family would never say to their relative, you're a burden, you're making my life more difficult. But if you are sensitive and know your family well, you can see the burden on them. And it's not uh, something you can legislate against. It's not something that's even spoken word sometimes. It's just the elder person looking at the impact of their family of having to come to the hospital every day and they feel like a burden and uh, it's an unwitting coercion. And, and we should not have this option of assisted dying in the sick room for these people. It's just not fair. And we also need to be careful to, to remember that we need to treat uh, everybody because they do have dignity because they're, they're made in the image of God, not because of what 
they are, but because of the God in whose image they're made. And uh, it's up to us to make sure that uh, we make people feel, feel that they have dignity regardless of their physical capacity. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. An important conversation about euthanasia and how by Friday it could be in the bag in Victoria. Uh, The Victorian Upper House will begin to debate the euthanasia bill tomorrow and they could come to a vote by Friday. Uh, It's been a ringing of the alarm bells in our conversation today with our three special guests, Dr. Megan Best, Babette Francis and Dan Flynn. We've been talking through this issue and just a couple of minutes remaining in our conversation and I want to be able to just reinforce uh, the importance for every listener to the conversation today, especially those who are in Victoria, about taking some sort of action. Uh, let me come to you, uh, Babit Francis, just quickly, uh, very, very quickly, what sort of action do you encourage listeners to take in the state well, of Victoria? Well, two of the representatives of my organisation are spending today and tomorrow at Parliament House trying to uh, see... Uh, the members of the Legislative Council, and uh, if they can't see them, deliver them uh, documents outlining the the dangers and the the sheer immorality of this uh, legislation. You know, thou shalt not kill, and we we simply must not allow it in Victoria. And it would be great if the Liberal leader would say that if they are elected to government, they will repeal this legislation if it uh, if it passes. I think that would be a, a something to uh, for us to to pray for. Uh, So many negatives and this would be the reason why in so many other legislatures uh, this has been voted down. Uh, Let me ask you Dan Flynn uh, as it goes before the Victorian Upper House is there something special about Victoria that they're going to drop the ball on this one and and lead the the nation into a very dangerous situation? Well organisations like Go Gently certainly hope that Victoria will drop the ball. They see this as the most vulnerable state uh, with a progressive government, um, you know, running this bill. Um, in, in terms of the action, perhaps following up the Bet's point, you know, you had the caller James from Victoria who said he had uh, telephoned and spoken with Wendy Lovell and Daniel Young. Um, well, I applaud James because he has identified who his upper house MPs are. They are both listed in the newspapers as undecided voters. And so those conversations, the sharing of James' story with them, uh, has a great impact. And we'll be hearing speeches from them over the course of the next couple of days. And we're very likely to hear them say, a constituent rang me and told me this. Uh, so um, I do encourage uh, listeners in Victoria to find out who their upper house MPs are, to contact the office uh, and to share uh, those stories uh, or those perspectives uh, that really matter to them. And Dr. Megan Best, just as a last moment uh, to encourage listeners about taking some action, about the dangers of what could be ahead, uh, your thoughts uh, just uh, very briefly. We need, we're not doing a good enough job caring for people who are, who are at the end of life. We need to do better. We need more funding for palliative care. And I would encourage people across the country, but most urgently, in Victoria to let their local members know, their upper house members know that this is not the way uh, to improve care at the end of life. It is too risky and we should not try this dangerous experiment. 
Well, Dr. Megan Best, palliative care doctor and medical ethicist, Babette Francis, founder of the Endeavour Forum, and to Dan Flynn, Victorian Director of the Australian Christian Lobby. I want to thank you, the three of you, for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart uh, with listeners today. And uh, I doubt whether there'll be a single person listening who isn't challenged uh, that this is a major ethical issue that could change direction here in Australia. And uh, for your insights and for your thoughts to the three of you, thank you so much and to every listener who participated and uh, I would uh, I would just encourage uh, listeners to reflect on the value of human life given we are created in the image and likeness of our God. To the three of you, thanks so much for being with us today on 2020. Thank, Thank you, Neil. Thank you for having us. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.